0: morning, I want to share with you a little bit about the season we're in. As I shared with the congregation last night, one of the best things we can do in terms of warfare is not be sidetracked or seduced away from the seasons of God. When God commands celebration, when God commands rejoicing, regardless of our circumstances, we are called upon to step into that space and give thanks and praise to God. When Israel was in Auschwitz under the smoke of the of the of the crematorium still Sukkot would come or Passover or or Shavuot Pentecost and the rabbis would gather the emaciated survivors to rejoice before the Lord their God even in those most difficult of circumstances and how much more so for you and I who are still in relative comfort we're mindful of the issues of the world today and they weigh upon us because these are, these are unprecedented events. The polarization in the West is, is painful to, to witness and experience. And what's going on in Israel today all the more so. But not just in spite of that, but because of that, we'll step into the seasons of God and today marks Simchat Torah, yesterday and today, which is the rejoicing of the law. And so I want to bring you cause to rejoice for the gift of the Word of God. In synagogues yesterday all around the world, the Torah scrolls were brought out, as you know here at Cornerstone, you've had good teaching on the calendar of Israel, but the Torah scrolls are brought out of the Holy Ark, the Aaron HaKodesh, and danced around the synagogue in what looks like a Pentecostal revival meeting if it weren't for the fact that they're not yet saved. Yeah, celebrating the gift of the Word of God, and they take turns carrying the Torah scrolls and to touch them, and children are held in the parents' arms, and they too come close to the, to the gift of the Word, and it's a celebration of what God has gifted the world through Moses and angels to Israel, through Israel to you and I. Yeah? And we could learn from that because sometimes we're very cavalier about the Word of God. We have so many different copies of it in so many formats. We can lose sight of the wonder, the miracle, the gift of heaven that this word, in fact, is to us. It is, it is life to us. It's the message of hope to the entire world. And it spans the ages and never grows weary in the power that God has invested in it. But there's a problem with this that I found as a young man when I first encountered the phrase Simhat Torah, In Hebrew, the grammar suggests that the word is rejoicing. We know it means rejoicing, celebrating because of the word or for reason of the word. Thank you, God, for this gift. But the the language, the grammar here is as though the word itself is rejoicing. Like Salty the Bible, back in the day, the children's story. You know, where you got a man dressed up in a blue Bible suit, dancing and singing, and you see this Bible dancing and rejoicing. And okay... But not really okay until you remember who is the Word made flesh. Who is the Torah incarnate? It is Yeshua, Jesus himself. yeah, And his name is the Word of God. It says in Psalm 138, Back it up one more. Thank you, guys. Let me just read that quickly. I will bow down toward your holy temple. I will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness for all you have exalted above all things, your name and your word. Yeah? Above all things, the name of God and the word of God, he has raised above all things in creation to the point that at the name of Jesus, finally every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Yeah? And so when we get this picture of the word Rejoicing, obviously, it's speaking about the Lord Yeshua in the final successful conclusion of this redemptive adventure. And it is, in fact, His name as the Word of God. Thank you very much. Take it to the next slide. His name is called the Word of God in Revelation. At the very end of the book... This seal is given upon Jesus. He is, he is identified as the very word of God. That is his name. And God has exalted Jesus, the name and the word, above all things. Yeah, And so it is Jesus that we celebrate this morning. Yeshua. God is salvation. And that is something you can declare over every circumstance of your life. We declared it this morning in song. I will get the victory. I will get the victory. God will turn that which the enemy meant for evil to good. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We all say amen. But we're declaring, we're declaring the rule of Jesus, of of salvation, of deliverance over our circumstances and over the circumstances of the world, because ultimately, it's not just about me and Jesus. I've been reborn, I've died to myself, I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus, and I've given a mandate now. And our agenda is the kingdom agenda. We have work to do. It's not just about surviving life on this side of eternity. It's about stepping into a role that God has offered each one, in fact, compelled each one, to come into the role of watchman, of intercessor, of, of influencer, those that sow hope and life into a world that is desperate for what you and I carry. Yeah. And sometimes the maturing of that word requires a stripping away of the things of the world. And so the word is matured in the desert. And so in this image of the desert that you see behind me, There, The word in Hebrew for desert or wilderness is midbar. Everybody say midbar. Midbar. And in that word, you find another word, davar, which is the Hebrew word for word. So in other words, the word is hidden in the desert. And it's in the desert, in the wilderness, if you will, metaphorically, that place where stuff is stripped away, where circumstances have conspired perhaps against you, where you feel yourself alone or abandoned or, or without resources at times. And we find ourselves left with only our relationship with God and having everything else important stripped away. We find ourselves on our knees, sometimes weeping. And, and you know what? It becomes one of those precious times of our lives. Because we realize everything's gone, but the testimony of the Holy Spirit within me tells me I'm still in love with him. And he's still in love with me. That is so precious. And those moments only come in the wilderness experience where the word can be tempered, in the wilderness where there's no distraction, in the wilderness where the sound of a voice can travel very far for reason of very few obstructions. No distraction. And so God calls us into the wilderness as he did with his first chosen people, Israel. And in Hosea chapter 2, as in many verses in Scripture, we find God drawing Israel into the wilderness. And you'd think at times, well, this is for punishment. You've been naughty, Israel. So into the wilderness. It's like sending your child to their room. But that's not the case at all. This is God's mercy. This is God's passion to draw Israel aside for intimacy so that without distraction, they can once again hear about his love for them and be reminded that they actually do love him. And so, for instance, in Hosea 2, I will punish her for all the times she deserted me when she turned incense uh, to her images of Baal when she burned it, put on her earrings and jewels and went out looking for her lover, says the Lord, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her out into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God employs the midbar. He employs the wilderness experiences that Israel is experiencing right now and that many of you experience seasonally. Those moments of isolation, those moments of, what now? And you pause. And God reminds you. Not only of his love for you. He, he, he needs no reminding. But he reminds you of your love for him. He brings you back to that sometimes weeping realization. I am in love with him. And I will have him whatever the cost. There's no escaping that. Yeah. So in maturing that that wilderness experience, God, too, has preserved his word for us in the wilderness, in the deserts of Israel. And so here is a, 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 a satellite image of the nation of Israel with which you're very familiar. And it was in the area around the Dead Sea, in an area known as Qumran, that um, the word of God was preserved for a, an opportune moment in Israel's history go ahead and change that slide guys thank you and then change it again there we go and change it again there we are we come to Qumran and most of you are familiar with that image that is one of the thousands of caves that are in the cliff face above the Dead Sea where an ancient religiously zealous group known as the Essenes preserved the, the word of God. They were, uh, they were fastidious scribes and were copying the word of God in, in many forms. And uh, every word, every book of the Bible, that is to say the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, had been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, since 1947 until today. All of them except for the book of Esther. Yeah. And I find this beautiful because it's almost like the Lord has a little smile. He's, he's just enjoying himself as he, as he reveals himself in this way. Why is the only book of the old Testament that has not yet been found the book of Esther, because Esther means hidden and it remains hidden. In fact, Esther is the only book of the old Testament where God's name is not found. It is hidden in the book. Using anacronyms, you find the word Yahweh, God's name, written both forwards and backwards according to the the unfolding of events in that book. But it's hidden. And I find it just beautiful that of all the books that have been found, all of them, except for the book of Esther, have been discovered. And it's almost as if we see God smiling and saying to us, do you see? Do you see my hand? Do you find my signature? Do you see my sovereignty at work in preserving my word for an, for an opportune moment and preserving my way, my, the wonder of who I am, the miracle of who I am? And so um, this word was found, again, um, only in 1947 in the caves of Qumran, a little shepherd boy, bored, throwing stones up into a cave. Here's pottery break. He goes up, finds papyrus, he brings portions down and begins selling them to tourists. And uh, the one of the tourists that he sold them to was Eliezer Sukenek, who was an Israeli archaeologist who recognized what he saw and began then the process of translating the Dead Sea Scrolls at a time that was so crucial in Christian history. Because right about now, at the end of World War II, Christian scholarship was leaning very left. It was going very liberal. And this Word, this Word of God was being treated not as divine and revealed, but rather as literature and history. And it was being dissected and uh, and explained away. And the thinking was, well, if... You know, compared to the original manuscripts, this will be very different because of all the mistakes the scribes would have inevitably made, all of the biases they would have brought into their copying. And so this is not the Word of God. It's just interesting history and poetry and so on. This was the leaning of the Christian world at the time that God resuscitated this Bible and returned it to its its powerful position. Yeah? And so... Finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were a 1,000 years older than the oldest manuscripts upon which our Bibles in 1947 had been based, they, they sought to prove their theory. They'll see the changes. And lo and behold, the opposite occurred. They discovered that even though these manuscripts are a 1,000 years older than the oldest upon which the Bible was based, there was no appreciable change. And that could only be described as a miracle, an astonishing miracle. Yeah? And what's wonderful here, too, is that it was not only the Word of God resuscitated in 1947, but it was the people of God, too, the first chosen people. Because on the very same date as, as Eleazar Sukhenik was translating the first of the scrolls on the 29th of November 1947, so, too, was the UN voting on the, the reestablishment of a state for Israel. So God was defibrillating the people of Israel as he was defibrillating his word. God had simply said, it's time. And he was resurrecting both to his divine redemptive purposes. Yeah. It's an astonishing thing. And this this date, by the way, the 29th of November, when Eleazar is beginning to translate the Dead Sea Scrolls and the UN takes its vote, which enables Israel to be reborn, a miraculous, unprecedented event in the annals of human history. This took place on a Shabbat, on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And the, um, the scripture reading for that, um, absolute, that ap- actual Shabbat was Genesis 32 through chapter 36. And in there we see Jacob is told twice by the Lord, your name shall no longer be Jacob, it shall be Israel. And it was through his, his engagement and confrontation with his, his elder brother Esau that all of this transpires. And Israel is about to be reborn and, uh, and go into, immediately this vote was taken, war breaks out in Israel with her elder brother, if you will, Esau, and the descendants of Esau. Yeah, so we see it playing out in the purposes of God And in Genesis 32 and verse 9, the reading for that Shabbat when this vote was taken and the word is being um, resurrected again, Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me what? Return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. So the Word of God being spoken in every synagogue around the world on that Saturday, the 29th of November, 1947, was God's command to Israel, return to your land and to your people. And the vote was taken, and the Word is resuscitated. And at that same time, again, God repeats His command to Jacob, your name shall be Israel. It's no longer Jacob. And five months after this vote was taken, we see, Uh, David Ben-Gurion launching the state of Israel. This too was on a Friday. The sun is going down. The Jewish Sabbath is about to take place and Ben-Gurion and the other leaders of the nascent state of Israel come together quickly to to vote and to declare the state of Israel in the wake of the vote that was taken some months before. And on that occasion, um, as they're taking this vote, um, they declare the nation of Israel which had been declared in the Shabbat reading five months before. Your name shall be Israel, not Jacob anymore. And other names were promoted by other Jewish people. Let's call the state this, that, or the other thing. But Ben-Gurion and others held on to the central name of Israel and said this is the state of Israel in accordance with the word of God and on that day when the declaration of the state of Israel was made the Sh- Sabbath reading that night as the sun went down was from Amos 9 and verse 11 in that day I will restore the fallen tabernacle of David I will repair its damaged walls from the ruins I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens and they will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This was the promise of God being declared in every synagogue around the world on that Friday that Israel was declared a reborn state by the Jewish returnees into that land. And what I'm sharing, I'm sharing this with you, brothers and sisters, to rekindle in you a sense of wonder regarding the miraculous nature of this book. It's not just a collection of authorship and a collection of histories and poetry. It is the living, immeasurable, amazing word of God gifted to humanity. And in in making copies of this word, as you see the scroll behind me, the rules governing the copying of this word are so stringent, even down until today. And these rules apply to no other religious movement in the earth. In order to guarantee the authority of this word, every time it was copied down through the ages, it had to be written on skins of clean animals. No one letter could be written, not more than one letter could be written from memory. In other words, you have an original copy here. You're the scribe, and you're copying it. You can't just see a word and then turn and write the whole word. You had to look each time. So it's not dependent on you, right? From Zechariah, not by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so the rules govern the fact that respect and honor of the word will see to it that this is not copied in my own strength or in my own, by my own memory. If a mistake was made, the copy had to be buried because inevitably the word of God is involved and a new scroll would be started. A space of one hair had to remain between each consonant. In other words, it was that exact. The the scribe had to sit in full Jewish dress when he was making the copy and he had to wash ceremonially in the mikvah every time he started. And some, some traditions tell us that every time before he would write the name of God, he had to go into the waters of uh, the mikvah to wash himself before he would write God's name. The, the, the pen he was using could not be newly dipped in ink while he was writing the name of Yahweh, the God's name. Why, why, why would that be? Because if you have too much ink, the likelihood is you might get a drop and you can't risk that when you're writing God's name. An error as you write God's name. All of these issues, the, the scribe um, would, would count The numeric values of the hebrew letters going up and down and across and uh, every copy had to be exactly the same as the original and in fact this is what i find astonishing is that the new copy now made was considered more authoritative than the original usually you and i by logic would say well the original is more authoritative but because of these strict uh, assignments to the scribes of the day Each new copy was considered now more authoritative than the old. And the old would be, perhaps if it's worn out, it's now again buried ceremonially because it contains God's name. It's a living word, so it's treated as a a body. And the new copy is considered authoritative. And so, again, let that put paid to any ideas that this is somehow a man-made collection. Don't allow, renounce, and reject any strategy of the enemy that, that seduces you into thinking, uh, any kind of liberal approach to this living word, we do honor to the word. Yeah. And ultimately, we do honor to Yeshua, Jesus, who is the word of God. And so we come uh, to Psalm 103 verses 1 and 2 which by by all counts is the middle verse of the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. And what do we find there once again the, the 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 declaration of a blessing to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I think we you you quoted that this morning in in our introductory thoughts and all that is within me bless his holy name. Anybody with, a, with a, a physical issue, put your hand over that issue right now this morning. And let's say that again together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And your, your body, the physical issues, the internal issues, the strife that you experience, cannot bless God in brokenness. So let it be made whole in Jesus' name. And you command your body by the Spirit of the living God, into wholeness by virtue of the blood of Jesus that we've shared this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And the very central idea of that central verse, of course, is bless the Lord, O my soul. Yeah? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Go ahead and put that up there, guys. Thank you. There. His holy name is the very center of all of this, yeah? And we see not only in the very center of the book, the holy name of God um, revealed, but also at the beginning and at the end of the book, in Genesis and in Revelation, remembering that the name, Jesus' name, is the word of God. And so at the very beginning of the book in Genesis, we have Genesis 1.1, and the central letter, uh, the, the middle word of that seven-word sentence with which you're very familiar, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The middle Hebrew word is et, which is comprised of the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, aleph uh, and taf which in Greek is the Alpha and the Omega. It's a reference, if you will, if you're willing to see it by faith, to Yeshua Jesus, who is the beginning and the end. And so at the very beginning of the book, there resides Yeshua Jesus at creation. And at the very end of the book in Revelation, we find in Revelation 1 and verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty And ultimately, in Revelation 22, again, behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph, Tav, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He comprises all. All things are summed up in the Lord Yeshua. And the wonderful thing, let me just add this as we close. Simcha Torah is associated with, is not found in the Bible uh, under that title. The Bible in in Leviticus 23 tags on to the seven-day festival of Sukkot, an eighth day called Shmini Atzeret, which is the eighth, it, it roughly translates the eighth, can I say, the eighth full stop, the eighth ending. It's the end of the celebration of Sukkot, but it's an eighth day. And all through the Bible, the, 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 the festival of Hanukkah coming in winter, which speaks of Jesus' incarnation, is an eight-day festival. Passover is seven days, but it's inextricably bound to Pentecost, separated by seven weeks, but thereby we have another eight-day celebration, which speaks of Jesus, the one who never ends. And then at the end of the redemptive story here with Sukkot and its eighth day, Shemini Atzeret, we have it's spoken of Jesus' return and rule and reign. But Simcha Torah has been, in Jewish tradition, associated now brought into as a cultural tradition to Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day, and it's a celebration of the gift of Word of God. And there's and it's a wonderful opportunity for us to remember what Jesus has done. And what I want to point out to you, and remind you is, I remember years ago I did a, a, a Sukkot, a Feast of Tabernacles here at Cornerstone, and we 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 did a Jewish wedding. And I had a chupa, a canopy under which a volunteer couple pretended to be a bride and groom standing in for Yeshua and his bride. And We had a, a wonderful celebration. But there's, because Sukkot... Is The wedding feast following the wedding ceremony and the consummation of the wedding Sukkot is the thousand-year wedding feast of Jesus millennial reign when every nation will be compelled to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king during Sukkot according to Zechariah chapter 14. That is a wedding feast that God the king compels all nations to to attend for his son and his bride. Now most of you, a lot of you are married. Some of you are still anticipating marriage and may God bless you and give you wisdom as you navigate the waters between here and there and, and be preparing you now for your, your, your help meet, your, your mate, whether they be man or woman, may they be perfect for you. But in the meantime, those of us that are married, I can tell you, the, I can remind you that the week before the wedding sometimes is the worst week of your life. Right, Because you've got the pressures from in-laws, prospective in-laws, you've got even your, 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 your engaged partner, they have ideas about what a wedding looks like, and you've got your own ideas. And I tell you, as a man, frankly, by then, I was going, whatever it takes, whatever color you want, big, small, whatever, I just want to get married. I just want to get married, right? And so let me, let me put in context the, the present difficulties you might be experiencing in your life and suggest to you that they are really just the issues of the week before the wedding. See them in that light. Get your eyes up off your circumstances. Raise your gaze to your bridegroom who's anticipating the day in, with such passion and he's looking to see the same passion reflected in the eyes of his bride. Don't become cavalier or downcast or forgetful. We're about to be married. We're about to have the the wedding for which we were betrothed to Jesus two thousand years ago by His shed blood. Now the consummation of that is about to take place. Yeah, and so the wedding takes place, and now we come to the wedding feast. And I remember at my own celebration, we were raised up on chairs and danced around the field, and we, you know, broke a glass, and we had singing, and we had a wonderful time. But at certain point, I leaned across to my wife at the head table, and I said, "Honey, can we go yet?" seriously i said are we done can we leave and she says sweetheart you haven't even thanked your parents yet yeah i was a little bit silly (laughs) but where was my focus all that time leading up to that moment and now i want to be alone with my wife and show her what i prepare i want us to begin now together and there comes a time where it's time for that and ultimately i found the right moment We did all the right stuff. We celebrated with everybody, but then I got to be alone with my wife. And so the rejoicing of the law speaks to not just a celebration for reason of the word or even Jesus himself rejoicing because he is the word but rejoicing specifically at the end of the wedding feast he pushes back his chair and he stands up and he begins to rejoice and he says now you will see if my word is not true now you will see if my promises to you were not trustworthy now you will see if everything that I endured and you endured together was not well worth it and what he will do then is pick up his bride in my mind he's got her in his arms yeah and he moves to the threshold of the door between time and eternity and he kicks open the door boom and he steps across that threshold into eternity and he sets the bride you and i down and he says now see what i've prepared for you and then it begins yeah. then it begins you see there's cause for the rejoicing of the word there's cause for Simchat Torah and when we rejoice in the word now today in 2023 with war breaking out in Israel right now with troubles all around the world with issues that are insoluble in your own life you nevertheless determine you stand into this this moment and you say I nevertheless will give thanks to God for the word and for my Lord Yeshua and I will raise my gaze in anticipation of that wedding day When you do that, you weaken the enemy's grip. You give glory to God. You advance the kingdom. You expand his glory and influence that will radiate out of your life. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, Please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.